Welcome to Help from Future Self. What's happening, Uncons? Welcome to another episode of Help from Future Self. It's the conversational Keyforge podcast by and for Keyforge friends. I'm your Keyforge friend. My name is Scuzzy Gruen, also known as Alex. I am joined this week, as with every week, by the guy who makes it all happen, my coach, my Keyforge pal. It's Boulevard Paper Fight. What's happening, Blake? Yeah, what's going on, man? Not too much, not too much. How have streams been uh, lately? Honestly, a lot of fun. I've kind of just been using the Advent decks as my streaming content, what I'm going to be using. And so it's seven decks being played. And this week, I didn't play any of the decks prior to stream. So uh, it's pretty exciting stuff. So literally, you're going in with seven decks that you've examined, that you've made videos about on YouTube. Where can folks find those videos? On my uh, Boulevard Paper Fight uh, YouTube channel. That's BLVD Paper Fight. And uh, actually, I just want to say something here because I just remembered now I meant to tell you before we started, but I think it's such a cool concept that I, I want to actually quickly share it here. So um, this person who listens to the podcast messaged me on the my most latest video. His username is Coco. And uh, they told me that I think we had a discussion about, you know, about decks and you were saying how in the future you don't want to really spoil too much on the next set and you want to really have that fresh perspective. Do you remember? I think that we talked about that last mm -hmm. week, didn't we? Yeah, we did. And so he was saying what, uh, actually, I don't know if it's a he, but they were saying that basically they like to go into a set blind when it's new. And so what they would do is they'd play like a sealed game with a friend and just open the deck and not look at the deck list or anything and draw into the discovery of the cards in the set by literally looking them at them for the first time as you're playing them, which I thought was such a cool thing. And they said it was just like the most like fulfilling and uh, enjoyable experience of discovery with the game of Keyforge. And I thought that was really cool. And so I told them I'd pass along to you and um, I forgot to before the show. So I thought, hey, let's talk about it now because I think everyone should hear this because it's a really neat idea. It's a terrific idea. I guess my only concern really is that as a, as a person who's involved with creating Keyforge content like you and myself are, mm -hmm. um, you much more so than me, but you know, I still, I still, I'm involved with a weekly podcast, new set and lead up to new set has so much stuff that I think people want to hear about. It's hard for me to make a commitment to, I'm not going to spoil the set for myself because you know, we, we want to look at cards, identify things that could be interesting, play over under, play, you know, wh what are you anticipating? Would you rathers and things like that? And so I guess we'll have to give some consideration to ways that we can still talk about the next set as it's approaching without actually totally spoiling it. Maybe that's not a possibility or maybe we can come up with something totally fun. The world is our oyster and I'm always open to new and interesting ideas uh, with that. You know, it's very possible that a lot of people feel the way that, you know, you and I both do. Um, and maybe they don't want us discussing spoiler cards on the podcast. Maybe they want to go in blind themselves. Maybe that's a that's a trend that we could try and start at least for uh, the next set. But we'll discuss that as the time grows closer. That's not what we're here to talk about today. No, but I actually want to just touch on that for a second. Sure. Um, guys, anyone out there who's listening to this, let us know on Twitter. Would you be OK if we decided for this next uh, was it Dark Tidings or whatever it is? Mm -hmm coming out would you be okay if we didn't talk about the set ahead of time to allow alex and i to have a discovery 
in a different way than we normally do. Would you be okay if, if we decided to kind of go dark on that? Because one of the main reasons why I like spoilers is because I want to know as much information as possible for upcoming tournaments and stuff. But I feel pretty confident that when the new set comes out, we will not be playing tournaments of that nature. So um, I might be okay with being in the dark a little bit and having a new sense of discovery, which I think will also make interesting episodes. Yeah, I think so too. So, so uh, reach out on Twitter, HFFS Podcast. Indeed. Let us know. Indeed. Like I was saying, um, that's not what we're here to talk about today, although I'm really glad we had that conversation off the top, Blake, mm-hmm. because uh, I think that uh, it, it will certainly lead to something different next time. And uh, in order to keep the podcast interesting, that's always a positive thing. Mm-hmm. What we're here to talk about today, though, is an old school topic, a deep topic, and one that I've had to think about a lot lately because I found myself getting extremely lazy about it. It's the time you spend examining your opponent's deck before a game. So, yes. <laughs> I'm going to preface this by saying that I am very bad with the discipline when we're playing online, which is, of course, the only key forge I've played, you know, for the last eight months or whatever. Um, I am bad with the discipline, Blake, of not looking at my opponent's deck list after the game starts when I'm playing on TCO which is if you're serious about practicing Keyforge as a thing that you wish to play, you know, both competitively as well as casually is a habit you should break yourself of. Do you find yourself referencing your opponent's deck list throughout the game or do you strictly do the two minutes before the start of the game and then we're off to the races? I was going to say, what's discipline? I literally <laughs> draw a card and go, oh, is this going to be, do they have something that's going to be problematic potentially if I play this? And I go consult the deck list. Um, I will say that part of the reason why I do that is on TCO, I feel that I want to get the game started faster. So I think I'm I'm kind of leaning towards just, you know, wanting to get the game going. So I'm not taking that time. And especially if I'm streaming as well, I think I don't spend as much time uh, looking at the deck list ahead of time, although I could probably use that as a means of discussing things. So I might start doing that more, but I definitely am developing a horrid habit of using the deck list available uh, at whenever I want. And it would be kind of cool if they could code a way that you can you can choose to have like a deck list timer that counts down at the start and then your deck list is hidden. Um, reaching out to you, Sky Jedi, Luke, you always come on my stream and, and check how TCO is looking. I appreciate you jumping in. How about you, new mission? Can you make a timer so that the deck lists disappear after two minutes if someone selects that option? Go. I would love to see that feature because it would certainly give me the kick in the button that I need Mm -hmm. to stop this habit. And I'll explain to you why this is important um, or at least give my perspective on why it's important. Then maybe Blake, you could, you could share your thoughts on it as well. Mm -hmm. Um, In tournament play, I think one of the most important pieces of information you can have is obviously what's in your opponent's deck. Um, because it's going to impact the way that you play your own deck, which is why there's an entire built-in part of the game of Keyforge if you're following the rules in which you have time to examine your opponent's deck list. You don't get to like pick up your opponent's deck and go through it. You just have to pick up their Archon card and look at it. You have two minutes to do that. And it's such a powerful tool um, that not treating that in the with the i guess the respect that it deserves as a function of the game is i think one of the laziest habits that i've managed to pick up and it's really starting to bother me because all that it's saying is you know i don't need to 
look uh, and understand the card pool in the way that I used to. I don't need to, uh, you know, put the thought into how I'm going to play my own deck. It's always going to be there for me to reference, especially as they get like lower and lower in their deck. To, so for me to try and figure out by looking at their deck list and like their discard, which is, you know, not something you can do during a real game. So it's not preparing you for actual in-person games. Obviously, winning isn't the most important thing in Keyforge, but it is something that if you want to play, you know, it, 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 what's the point in playing if you're not at least trying to win on some level? Mm-hmm. No, I would agree with you. Yeah, it's um, it's definitely a bad habit. I think part of it has to do with the fact that I know there's no tournaments that I'm going to be participating on the horizon where this is going to be a thing. So it makes me a little bit more, I don't want to say lazy, but it, it feels like that is the right word to use. It's like, I don't feel the need to try and flex that muscle, but it, it is, it is a muscle because I can remember even when we had that, we got blessed with in the summer, we got to have that one little mass mutation release tournament and we were playing sealed, but it's like in that moment, you're like kind of wondering, it's like, Oh, like I remember even other times when you're playing and you start going, I can't remember if you have this in your deck or not. You you know that because you're you're not used to to looking at a list and and memorizing what's in there. So um, it is something that you and all of us will have to get better at, depending on if we're going to be starting to play tournaments again. Yeah, it, absolutely, indeed. So I, I guess this is sort of as much for our listeners as it is for you and I, Blake, to really think about what this process entails and what we can get out of it. So. To start things off conversationally, I would say, Blake, uh, I think we both know the sort of things that we look for when we pick up our opponent's deck list. Sometimes it's a specific card because we're playing a deck that has a very specific answer, but oftentimes it's cards that fit into certain silos, things like amber control, board control, um, you know, very specific, uh, you know, uh, answers. Artifact to control is a big Artifact one, I think, control. now. Yeah, definitely, especially if you're like me and you're playing a lot of Quixel all the time. So mm -hmm. when you pick up that opponent's card, do you just go through it one by one by one, or do you start scanning looking for specific cards? I think my initial reaction is to is to kind of go over everything. Like just a quick look, does anything jump out? That's the first thing. And then I start looking for uh, specific counters to things that I know my deck wants to do. So for example... Um, big ones is like, like I mentioned before, because we're, there's, I think artifact archetype decks in mass mutations have become more of a thing, you know, auto encoders, dark amber vaults, quixel mm -hmm. stones exists, all those sort of things that you kind of look for that a little bit more than we have in the past, like transporter platforms. So I, I've noticed that the first thing I do is actually, I look for artifact control is usually one of the very first things I'm trying to find out. And then depending on what my deck does, the next thing I'm looking for, especially in mass mutation, is scaling ember control. Mm -hmm. If I know my deck's going to be bursting, do I have to be cautious and not get frivolous with that burst because it could bite me in the butt? Because most likely if I'm playing in a mass mutation deck, I do not have the counter of scaling ember control. How about yeah. you? I think that's a really important lesson to take away from this. Um, and specifically that not all amber control cards are dealt with the same way when you see them on your opponent's deck list. So mm -hmm. let's take um, two, two examples and pick them out of a hat. Um, scaling amber control in the form of too much to protect versus amber control in the form of infernus. Look, my opponent having infernus doesn't actually impact the way I play the game ever. 
I like knowing it's there. And if I haven't seen Infernus yet, but I know my opponent has it and his deck's getting low, that's a useful piece of information. But it doesn't generally impact the way I play the game because the opponent will almost always get pretty much the same amount of control out of me by playing his Infernus at, at any other time in the game. Maybe I happen to have a card like, you know, Virtuous Works or Ritual of Tognath or something else like that, that he's going to get a way bigger uh, uh, Amber loss out of me uh, with his Infernus. But for the most part, there's nothing I can do in most games to prevent him from playing Infernus shy of things that like allow me to control, you know, what house my opponent calls. Or mind fire, which is going to make him discard it potentially. Exactly, yeah. But for the most part, I have to assume that I'm just going to see Infernus at some point. It might take me off a key. And, you know, there's not a whole lot I can do about it one way or the other. It's very hard to bait out something like Infernus because my opponent understands that too and understands, especially if it's one of their key pieces of uh, Amber Control versus something like, as you said, too much to protect, that scaling Amber Control, where it actually does impact the way that I play the game. Because, like you said... If I know that my opponent has that, it can be way too big of a risk for me to burst up to 12 Amber or something like that, depending on the deck mm -hmm. you're playing. You have mm -hmm. to understand not only what control exists in your opponent's deck, but whether or not it's control that impacts the way that you play the game. I think very much the same way that when we see certain forms of board control. So I'm thinking of like Axiom of Grisk. I'm thinking of those tricky decks that use like Spartasaur and things like that for board control. You have to really understand that, okay, I'm not as worried about Axiom of Grisk because this deck has a lot of capture and I have ways of moving that amber around in such a way that I'm not worried about somebody dropping that because they're only going to take out my creatures that aren't already exalted or have captured amber on them versus something like, oh, I have to really watch out because I'm playing a capture heavy deck and this person has basically the answer to that in the form of a uh, gateway to dis. So, you know, those are the kinds of things that I really think about when I'm trying to examine what my opponent has within sort of those big silos. Mm -hmm. There's a new one that's emerged that I never looked at before, but now I find is very relevant. And that's because of mass mutations and the rise of mutants. And so many things that are a, a double-sided sort of advantage. So, for example, you have like Torados now, which say when a mutant reads, draw a card. That works on both sides of the table. And then you have things like Vault's Blessing, which is for each mutant, gain Ember. So you have to be aware of if that's a like a big win condition for you, you need to be able to know what creatures are mutants by reading their names so you can count that up on your opponent's side and know the risk factor if you want to play it and when you should play it as a result. Because if you know they have, like, let's say, eight creatures or mutants in their deck and you're trying to have that big play, but you're like, okay, they only have two out right now and I have five or I have four, it may be worthwhile to burn this now in case next turn they go and drop three or four because this one house that they haven't called a lot of actually has a, the majority of their mutants. So you have to kind of um, weigh in that risk-reward factor because of the mutant trait. And same mm -hmm. with like, there's it actually falls into almost every category, bursting, uh, board wipes. There's, there's all these things now that target mutants specifically. So you need to be aware of what you have and what your opponent has and when to use that card appropriately. It's, it's created a more, um, a higher level of skill for the game, which is, I think, amazing. And a deeper knowledge of the, 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 the card set, I think, is really <clears throat> important now in a way that it never used to be. I used to say that, like, with a few exceptions, I never really cared to look at what creatures were in my opponent's deck for the most part. Yeah, um, same. 
Because like I was saying earlier with Infernus, it doesn't matter in a lot of cases because there's nothing you can do short of, you know, uh, certain forms of control or, you know, uh, there are ways you can stop people from playing creatures for like a single turn. But for the most part, any creature in your opponent's deck, it's likely your opponent's going to get the opportunity to play it. And most creatures, although some can be very impactful on the game in the state of the game, it's not something that you can think about controlling. So the best really thing that you can come away with when you're examining your opponent's you know deck list is oh they have some creatures but it's not something that's a huge priority for me i'm always looking for those action cards that have the things that we've discussed the amber control the artifact control board clears and things like that which is not to say that that being said there are two creatures oddly enough they're both in sanctum that uh do warrant being aware when you see them and it's you only have to know this it's it's deck dependent and uh they're one is Barrister Joya, and the other is Master of the Grey. Because if you have a very creature-heavy deck that you know reaping is going to be the way that you get to those keys, Barrister Joya is a problem. If you have a low creature count deck, and obviously maybe a Quixelstone deck even, where you're going to be playing a lot of actions and getting Ember Pips and whatnot, or if your deck just has a lot of Pips that give you a lot of um, advantage and like advance your gameplay, then Master of the Grey is actually a huge problem. And I know you and I, when we play that tournament, you found that out was the case yeah we had that game where you basically got master of the great out and protected early and it just shut down my deck there was nothing i could do about it and you know it's it's i wish i had known the card set better at that time because that would have you know allowed me to at least prioritize taking out master of the gray which i don't think i did fast enough in order to be able to counteract your deck but kind mm-hmm. of what i was getting at with with sort of the the additional depth that you were talking about is that in the past i never cared much about creatures when I was doing the examination of my opponent's deck list. I'm starting to care more about it now because what we're seeing is that traits matter in ways that they didn't used to. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm thinking about things like Dark Amber Vault and Dark Amber Vault is such a terrific card because it is one that is a skill testing card in a sneaky way, Blake. If I have a Dark Amber Vault in my card, in my deck, and I'm looking at my opponent's deck list, I have to start thinking real hard about, do they have Boro? Do they have a means mm. of getting rid of my Dark Amber Vault? And is that going to mess up my game plan because I rely upon it so that my deck cycles faster as I play my mutant creatures and so on and so forth? Those mm-hmm. are elements that I now have to consider. Um, and, you know, that's that's definitely a thing that I think is super important when we're playing the game now is that traits never used to matter as much. Now they're really starting to matter. No, it's true. And, and, it's, and it's like... Like I think we can say that Dark Ember Vault has kind of become like a boogeyman sort of card. When you see your opponent has it, you go, oh crap, I'm going against a DAV deck. But there's a secondary thing to that, which is, wait, how many mutants do they actually have in this deck? Mm-hmm. And you start counting because you're like, oh, they have a Dark Ember Vault, but I'm actually looking here, there's there's only five mutants in the whole deck, so it's actually not going to have that great of an impact. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you this question, Blake. Do you have like a mental process that you go through? Like, do you start by, because I know we've talked about this in the past, and at the time I think I suggested, okay, well, first I look for the Amber Control, then I look for the board clears, then I look for if there's anything else that I need to be aware of that might impact certain cards with my deck. But do you actually do that process, or is it a much less regimented, I just read through the cards and certain ones jump out to me? And I suspect that, you know, I I have a theory about how you're going to answer this, that I'm I'm curious to hear what the answer is, because uh, you are a master analyst when it comes to Keyforge decks. 
I'm definitely not these days. I literally, <laughs> I fly by the seat of my pants and it depends on the deck that I'm playing right now. I used to have a more regimented process, but now I'm kind of just like, I, I kind of in my mind have, this is what this deck wants to do. These are the things that are going to prevent that from happening. Do they exist? And that's how I read it. And then it's also because I'm, I, I think it's because I've gotten lazy too. I don't have as much a regimented because I know when a certain card I have comes up, I'll just refer to my opponent's deck list and see if it's going to be problematic if I have to be cautious. So um, my laziness because of not playing tournaments has definitely fueled me to have a bad habit and not have a regimented process. I only look at, is anything pop out? Especially because I'm doing it a lot on stream, so I want to like talk about the opponent's deck. Like, And it's like, oh, what are the highlights? You know, that's I don't really look at it uh, too much, but I, I kind of just... So let me kind of think about this for a second. Uh, I look at the list kind of glance it over if anything pops out any chase cards we got sins do we have z force agents do we have gigantic creatures stuff like that that's you know exciting that could come out in terms of like as viewers they're going to be excited to maybe see my opponent play that that's things that happen uh combo pieces coming out and then uh identifying threats like oh there's too much to protect in this so got to be careful like watch out for that wow like three unlock gateways like that that could be problematic throughout the game i'm not going to really get a board uh, things like that start coming into play, but I, I think I'm more viewing it now from creating a discussion and information because I'm streaming, and that's the main way I'm playing right now. Mm-hmm. But I definitely have a bad habit of not having a regimented process for the terms of understanding the deck. It's more of a dialogue-based discussion of why I, I view it. Mm-hmm, totally. Uh, I guess what, what my uh, big, like, theory with you was is that i've watched you analyze so many decks because of your youtube series where you crack open a deck and literally start going through it and talking about what you think the deck wants to do um but the way that you approach that is literally just going through and counting and so i was wondering if you did sort of a mental version of that when it came to is that a thing that you would do if you were more tournament form to be completely honest, I've never thought about it. But now that you're saying it, I it actually seems like an amazing idea. And I'm kind of wondering why I don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. Like now that you said it, it's like, yeah, why haven't I done that? It actually seems like a, a really easy thing to do. And it would be really helpful to know, like the, the whole reason I do is like how many cards exist that could do A, B, or C. And I just realized... Why wouldn't I do that? Especially just for the even the Ember and board control, the main ones, like just go those two things. Mm-hmm. Um, and creature count, like, yeah, I've, I probably should start doing that. It seems like a really <laughs> good thing. I'm going to test that out because I, I like that idea. Yeah, my process is a mess, Blake. Like literally the way that I approach it is I look at the thing, I go to like a house, I jump to another house, I'm scanning through, I'm looking for the things that I know that my deck doesn't want to see. So if I'm mm. playing a creature heavy deck, I'm looking for those board clears. If I'm playing a Quixel deck, I'm looking for that artifact control. I'm hoping that I don't see certain things and I'm going, okay, what's my plan going to be if this comes up early and I have to you know, resort to a secondary plan or I have to play around it. Or what have you. But I never ever approach it in what I would call a disciplined fashion. Um, I'm always just looking for specific cards. And I think what I would like to try and start doing is a more regimented process where I go through card by card by card by card by card. 
and just see, okay, obviously when I read the card name, the ones that I'm already looking for are going to pop out to me, but it also is going to make sure that I don't overlook anything that I should be paying attention to. I think that there's a lot of value in starting at the beginning, at the very top of your opponent's deck list and reading through all 36 cards, which when you're in good form and you know the card pool well, actually won't take that long to do. Mm-hmm. Which brings me to a point that I wanted to discuss, which is, do you take the whole two minutes? No. I never do, and it's a bad habit, and I wish I did. If it was a tournament, I 100% would. It's just the nature of how we're playing right now. Mm-hmm. I know if we were playing a tournament, I would take the absolute full two minutes. I wouldn't hand it back early. Uh, I think that we, as players, generally rush way too much to hand the deck back in our local scene i notice it it's just like okay here it's like there's like a full minute left i think in that case a discipline of taking more time to read the deck list needs to become more of a thing but also at the same time which just we're a product of the environment that we're playing the game in right now and that's i think has a lot to do with it and i'd be very shocked uh to find out that most people or even a majority of any sense is doing that it's probably a very few uh the minority of the the community is doing that and they're probably very disciplined people who it's just a habit that they have never broken mm-hmm. yeah I, I would agree with that 100 percent. i think ultimately what i've been thinking about is if i do have an opportunity where it's a less casual game or where i've managed to agree with my opponent on tco that hey can we take uh, you know the two minutes to actually look at each other's deck list before the start of this game maybe they say no i want to start right away and go all right fine but if they say yes then it's a case of, all right, I'm going to try and read my opponent's entire deck list. I'm going to look for the cards that I'm looking for that are going to impact how I play the game. And then I'm going to not look at their deck list and see if I can mentally recall the important things and then go back to it, which is a lot to do in two minutes. But man, sometimes it feels like that two minutes lasts a whole lot longer than two minutes, if you feel me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. So I I think there's a lot of room for growth in terms of the way that we approach this. And I would love to hear from you listeners about how you examine an opponent's deck list, because I think we all do it in our own way. Oftentimes um, in a casual game, it's a very conversational thing with me. Like you and I have played games where you've handed me the deck list and I've gone, oh, that's a cool combo. Or, hey, what does that card do if it's, you know, early on in a, a set? And I think it's totally okay to have those conversations in sort of a more casual environment. In that competitive environment, I think it really behooves you to try your absolute best to use that two minutes in the most efficacious way possible. Reading the deck list, seeing what you remember when you look away from it for a second, and then going back to double check, and in those ways, actually learning a little bit about what your opponent's deck is like and how it's going to play against your deck. Mm -hmm. I agree. All right. Can't end an episode of Help from Future Self without the titular segment. This one's called... Help Help from Future Self. I got one for us this week. As you may be able to tell by how scattered I've been this episode, I'm feeling pretty burnt out right now. That's for a lot of reasons. Very busy at work. Uh, my other uh, endeavor, idieudie.com, is in year-end right now, which means I'm doing a ton of music writing and listening and podcasting uh, with regards to that. Um, and I'm starting to feel mentally like really burnt out, which makes it a lot harder to do things um, – that require brain power, that require examination, that require analytical thought. And I was playing a game of Keyforge the other day, uh, sort of just on my lunch break um, while I was thinking about something else. And I was making a lot of really dumb mistakes, like really bad. Just I did a thing without thinking because I wasn't mentally present. I was mentally exhausted and it just 
you know, wasn't there. And I think the lesson that I want to sort of impart here is sometimes it is absolutely okay to just walk away from the game. If you mentally don't feel like you're in a place where you can play it in a way that's going to like be satisfying to you. Um, obviously it's a okay to play a game as just like a relax or a cool down thing. And if you don't care how well you play, that's fine. But I find that I get frustrated when I'm playing poorly and that leads me to feel upset. And it makes me feel upset, not only at the game, but at myself. And there's no reason that you should feel that way. Everybody makes mistakes and even the most focused and great players in the history of the game of Keyforge, the short history of the game of Keyforge have straight up made big mistakes in high level games that's a-okay for that to happen, but what's not okay is for people to beat themselves up for it. So if you're in a mental space where you feel like um, playing the game isn't going to be conducive to like good mental health, if you feel like you're just going to end up feeling frustrated and angry at yourself, angry at the game, it's okay not to play. Even if it's a habitual thing that you do, even if it's the thing you always do on your lunch or always do on Monday nights or always do uh, with your buddies on the weekend, if you're just not there, it's okay to put it aside and wait till your brain is in that place where you can play in a way that's going to be fun and satisfying for you and not a frustrating experience. Very good lesson. I know uh, I've been guilty of beating up myself for making mistakes. You can find us on Twitter at HFFS Podcast. As Blake said, if you have thoughts on this topic or if you have thoughts on whether or not we should try to avoid spoiling the next Keyforge set, hit us up on there. We would love to hear from you. I am, of course, on Twitter at Scuzzy Gruen, on Instagram at Scuzzy Gruen, and on the Crucible at Scuzzy Gruen. That's me. What do you got going on and where can folks find you, Blake? You can find me on Twitter is the best place to reach out if you want to have a conversation. That's a Boulevard Paper Fight, BLVD Paper Fight. Same way you can find my YouTube channel where I am putting out a lot of content. We are past the halfway point of the Keyforge Advent Calendar, which has been honestly such a great process. I'm really enjoying doing these videos. And of course, you can catch me every Tuesday where I stream at Boulevard Blake on Twitch. That's BLVD Blake. And uh, I would love to see you there to have a discussion and chat. And uh, a lot of people stop in and sometimes talk about things that we had on the podcast. So I uh, hope to see you there. And I uh, appreciate everyone's support on all those endeavors. Blake, uh, I will try and tune in for some tonight. But I think right now what I actually need is a nap so that I can be mentally prepared for more Keyforge in future. All right, time to sign off. Thanks so much for listening. We hope to hear from you soon. And until then, stay focused.